the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the January 2015 podcast. This month, why patients admitted to hospital from care homes are much more likely to be dehydrated than those admitted from their own homes. Those who were dehydrated were about twice as likely to die in hospital. And one of our scientists gets to show off her knowledge of speed cameras and random chance. So give me a quick cheer if you've managed to find a calculator on your iPhone. Researchers from the school are about to conduct clinical trials of a new vaccine for the Ebola virus. The trials in Europe and Africa will assess the safety and efficacy of the promising Prime Boost Ebola vaccine. As part of this, school researchers are also coordinating a project to overcome the stigma surrounding Ebola and suspicion of vaccines in general. Dr. Heidi Larson from the school has just come back from Sierra Leone and told us more. We have a number of volunteers from the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine who are working in different capacities, uh, and it was a, a mission of three or four of us from the school and the head of the Wellcome Trust seeing what the situation was, providing a bit of kind of moral support to the the school staff who are there, but also exploring opportunities for one of the vaccine trials, which we're now quite involved with. Before we talk about the trial, what was your sense of the situation in Sierra Leone? Well, it it was a very interesting time to be there because a number of people quite independent of each other said had the sense that things had really started changing in the previous two weeks from when we were there. And while while there were still quite a few cases and a few concentrated places, things were stabilizing a bit in terms of cases. And also, the tide had turned a bit in terms of moving from more of a denialism, this can't be true, to Ebola is real. And there were some people wearing T-shirts saying Ebola is real. There were some signs. And I think I think a lot of the, the public media around the different ways of saying Ebola is real, I think the reality had sunk in. This is here. This is not something that is in the minds of people. And it's not just Central Africa disease. Is it surprising to you that it's taken so long for that for the message to hit home that it is real? Yes and no, partly because this is not a virus or illness that anyone had seen in that part of Africa. The nature of the symptoms, at least the earlier symptoms, are not unlike various other uh, viruses and and illnesses with high fevers and, and achiness, a lot of kind of malaria or flu or other other kinds of illnesses, it becomes more specific with the hemorrhagic hemorrhaging and, and the other complications from Ebola. Um, so I think that to people who don't know, um, and and also I think didn't really want to believe it. I mean, I, I think it was really hard for people to believe. Um, and also that that part of Africa, I mean. All of the countries have their own histories, but it's been through some pretty rough years, and there's not a lot of trust in the government and trust in general. I think the the political environment 
and then mixed with the strong uh, religious and cultural traditions, particularly around burials, and the fact that it was a brand new, at least to that area, virus and, and, and consequent disease, were factors that I think made it take a while. Also, it you know, WHO was quite late in the game in terms of acknowledging this, and that added another level of this is real. Um, but I think the, at, a, at a local level, it was really seeing people dying, seeing the number of issues, and seeing that it, it was still there and persisting. Okay, so you, you talked about uh, a new potential vaccine. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's one of the candidate vaccines. There are three, and this one is produced by Janssen, and it will have what they call a, a prime and a boost, like a number of childhood vaccines. They have a first one and then a follow-up boost. Each of the vaccines are, are unique, and it's not just about the vaccine itself, but when you administer it. And, and one of the areas of work I'll be leading the part of the the collaboration with some partners around supporting the engagement and, and the compliance issue. I think the thing about this particular vaccine will be the importance of making sure that not just that people accept it at first on terms that and understanding in a way that's locally acceptable, but that they come back for the boost, because that will be a very important part of, of this rollout. So is that a big problem, the stigma related to the vaccines? Uh, stigma is an issue, but I think part of it is more the anxiety about a vaccine. And, and I think some of the questions coming up is, you know, is this something that can give us Ebola? I mean, there's always a mix of issues, some of which are consistent with other vaccine anxieties. But in this particular environment, I mean, immunization in general has dropped dramatically. And I think it's... You know, anxieties about going into health centers uh, in that environment with Ebola circulating, it's a concern. But we have yet to start the actual local listening, which I've been mostly trying to gather as much information as we can from colleagues and other partners on the ground. So how do you go about doing something like that, getting the trust of the people on the ground in a new vaccine which hasn't been tested out before? Well, I mean, the most important part is to identify who are the local trusted networks, because at the end of the day, they're going to be the ones who need to carry the message and support the the follow-up in particular. So uh, I think that's going to be really a matter of understanding who's who on the ground, who are the right colleagues, and that will come from uh, we're working with other local organizations and, and international organizations, and of course the government, the Ministry of Health, um, and Ebola is also, you know, at the level of, of the head of state because it's really cutting across all all ministries. So it's not just one player that needs to engage; it'll need to be a number of them. So there's. It's, it's complex, but I think we're building good relations, and that's the part of it that we've already been doing some advanced work on. That was Dr. Heidi Larson, and you can hear an extended version of that interview at lshtm.ac.uk. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. 
New research by the school suggests that patients admitted to hospital from care homes are much more likely to be dehydrated than those admitted from their own homes. And those dehydrated patients are significantly more likely to die in hospital. We spoke to study co-author Martin McKee, Professor of European Public Health at the school, to find out more. One of my colleagues, Dr Tony Wolfe, who's an intensive care specialist in a hospital near London, had realised that a large number of patients were coming in with high levels of sodium in their blood, being admitted to hospital. I wondered what was going on, what was the reason behind this. So when he looked in more detail, he found that many of these patients were coming from postcode sectors, small areas of uh, the uh, surrounding area. Uh, where you would normally expect maybe one or two patients each year from a particular postcode, but there were a lot coming from them. And when he looked in more detail, he found that these were predominantly the areas in which there were nursing homes, care homes. As a consequence of that, we looked in more detail and we worked together to match the uh, patients admitted to hospitals to the care homes and to collect the other data about them, their age and their gender and whether they were an emergency admission or whatever. And what did you find when you started looking in more depth? What we found was that people who were admitted to hospital from a care home were about 10 times more likely to have a high level of sodium on admission to hospital. Now, why is this important? A high level of sodium is a marker of dehydration. These are people who had too little fluid in their systems and almost certainly a pointer to them not drinking enough. What sort of numbers are we talking about here? Is this a, a very serious problem in care homes? Was it everyone coming from a care home compared to people that were coming from their own homes? We looked at about 20,000 patients in total, but of those, only about 2,500 were admitted from care homes. What we found among those admitted from care homes were that about 12%, which was about 450 altogether, uh, were coming in with the high sodium as a marker of dehydration. Among people admitted from their own home, which is the vast majority, uh, only 1% were, uh, had a high level of sodium. This sounds like a pretty significant difference. Is there any impact on people's health if they come into hospital in this kind of state? It's a highly significant difference. Now, of course, we did have to adjust for other factors. People in care homes do tend to be a little bit older and they tend to be frailer. They're more likely to have dementia. So we took account of all of that and we found that those coming from care homes were five times more likely than those from their own homes to have the high sodium and therefore the dehydration. It is important because dehydration is associated with a number of problems. People tend to be more confused. Uh, it's, leaded, it's associated with worse outcomes. And in particular, what we found was, again, after adjusting for all sorts of other factors, that those who were dehydrated were about twice as likely to, uh, be, to, to die in hospital. This sounds pretty serious. What do you think is going on in the care homes that is leading to these patients becoming dehydrated? We were unable to look at what was happening in the care homes because we only saw the patients once they got into hospital. But it does tie in with a lot of anecdotal evidence that patients in care homes, that residents of care homes often do not get enough fluid for a number of reasons. So, for example, the individuals themselves may be reluctant to drink because it's difficult to go to the toilet when they need to. They may not get the support that they want. But unfortunately, we also have heard stories of how the staff in, in the care homes 
may be uh, restricting their fluid or deliberately not encouraging them to drink because they know that if they do, they may wet the bed and uh, uh, and need to be cleaned up. In the area that you looked at, You've just looked at one area in London. Do you think that this might be a more systemic problem across the country? Is there any other data to support that? This is the first time that this has been documented as a problem of patients coming from care homes to hospitals. We clearly uh, state the need for more research to look at this. It will be different in different parts of the country simply because hospitals uh, have uh, different numbers of care homes in the surrounding area. So, for example, this was a hospital in the outskirts of London where there are a large number of care homes with elderly people living in them. If we were to go right into the centre of London where property prices are very high, there are very few care homes. So the big London teaching hospitals would have very few patients coming to them from care homes. Similarly, there are parts of the country, perhaps some of the coastal areas, uh, where a lot of people have retired to, where you would expect uh, even more older people to be living in care homes, perhaps because they've actually gone to the sea to find uh, somewhere nice to spend the remainder of their days. But if it's not turning out like that and patients are... But if this does turn out to be a problem that is more widespread and patients coming from care homes are perhaps more dehydrated, what do you think needs to be done? Is this something urgent that perhaps government or public health officials should sit up and take notice of? Clearly, the, the, it is self-evident that people should not be allowed to get dehydrated. They should be encouraged to drink and they should be given the support to go to the toilet when they need to. And that simply indicates a problem of management and of professional standards in the care homes. What is important to stress is that we did not find uh, increased risk associated with every care home. It was about a third of the 53 care homes that we looked at. So some were clearly able to keep patient, keep the residents hydrated adequately. That was not a problem. But we feel that where there is a care home from which a number of people are coming to hospital in this state, this should raise a flag and it would be legitimate to look at what is happening in that particular care home to see if something needed to be done. Is there an argument for actually making this part of monitoring, perhaps when every patient comes in from a care home or from their own home, that these figures should actually be gathered in some kind of systematic way? Obviously, with any form of monitoring, you need to be careful because as soon as you set it up as a monitoring system, people will try and find ways of gaming the system. So I'm always a little bit cautious on that. But uh, at least it should be piloted and it could be tested as, as a way of looking at the a proxy marker for the quality of care. That was Professor Martin McKee. Finally, a cold January night in a pub basement in King's Cross was where we found an audience of science, nerds, geeks and fans of the Big Bang Theory. Science Show-Off is a monthly evening of stand-up comedy and chat performed by working scientists and science communicators. Jennifer Rogers, who's a medical statistician from the school, took up the challenge and combined statistics and speed cameras to explore the confusion between causality and chance. Would you please welcome to the stage, Jen Rogers! It's Monday night and you're in a pub in London. What's a mathematician doing here? <laughs> I'm not really sure, to be honest. Um, no, uh, Science Show Off is a, a really good event that, that talks about science events, but this one's got a special maths focus. Um, and as someone who does quite a bit of 
public speaking in maths, um, they brought me along to talk about stats. So, give me a quick cheer again if you're using iPhones. Yeah. So you're all members of the town and you're worried about the number of road accidents. And I'm going to give you some speed cameras. But we need to decide where we're going to put those speed cameras. And the typical strategy that gets used is to look at where the accident hotspots are, where are the black spots happening. And we're going to put our speed cameras there. So everyone with an iPhone, I want you to um, look at your calculator app. So it wouldn't be a mass show without a calculator. So give me a quick cheer if you've managed to find the calculator on your iPhone. Woo! Now if you look next to the zero, you'll see there's a, a button that says RAND on it. And if you press that a number of times, you'll see that that is actually a random number generator. I know, I know, right? So in a minute I want you to press your random number generator just the once. And the number that you get after the decimal point, that's how many accidents happened outside of your house. And then what we're going to do is those who get the most accidents are going to get speed cameras. So I want you to all press your random number generator and stick your hand up if you had nine accidents. There's just two of you, right? So I've got some speed cameras here which you get to put on your head. And you've been talking about causality and chance. Um, can you give us an example of how people get that mixed up in real life? I think. A lot of the time you don't see, you don't know underlying probabilities. All you see is the data that's put in front of you. And it's very easy sometimes to tell a certain story with data without thinking about what is the chance going on underneath it. Um, and you need to think about what underlying probabilities can be. So I talked about uh, speed cameras and sports and things like that. I think a lot of the time people can read too much into shock results without sometimes just realising these things happen just by chance. So you guys have now had speed cameras put outside of your houses because you you've got the accident black spots and we're going to see whether or not those speed cameras now reduce the number of accidents that happen the year after. So what I want you to do is I want you to press your random number generator again and Rob, how many did you get this time? One. You had one accident and, and Mel's over there, how many did you get? Nine again. You got nine again. Could you talk through, so in, in, um, in your uh, stand-up you talk about Sports Illustrated, can you just explain that as an example of how people get these things confused? Yes, yeah, so a lot of the time um, when people appear on the cover of Sports Illustrated, either a team or a sports person, it's because they've got some sort of exceptional performance at the moment. So they're at the very top of their game. And that's a combination of the skill that they have, but also the look that is on their side. And what regression to the mean says is that we do have that look fluctuates, that sometimes we have lots of look on our side and sometimes look, looks against us. And that when you have look on your side and you're at the very top of your game, that's when you're likely to appear on the cover of Sports Illustrated. But that that doesn't last forever. It's just a random fluctuation. And that at some point you will go back to just your standard level, your normal level of performance. And that happens after people are on the cover of Sports Illustrated because when they're on the cover of Sports Illustrated, they're at the very top. So then they think that you know there's this Sports Illustrated jinx, that once you appear on the cover, that's it, your performance is going to be worse, whereas actually it's just your performance going back to normal. And you work in clinical trials, so how does this apply to your research? So in clinical trials, we have to make sure that when, when we have a new treatment or anything like that, that, that what, if we see an effect, if we see a treatment effect, that it's because it actually is there. And it's not just because it's happened just by chance. Um, sometimes you have random noise around results and things like that that can, that can skew what your interpretations might be. And we need to always make sure that whatever happens isn't due to chance and it is actually because there is something going on.
Do you find yourself having to explain these kinds of concepts to other scientists who are perhaps looking for patterns in their research? Yeah, well, being a medical statistician, working with other scientists, you know, clinicians and what have you, is fundamentally important to what we do. And if you're working with pharmaceutical industries, for example, then they're always interested as to whether or not their new treatments work. And sometimes you do have to rein them in a little bit and, you know, um, talk about is there an effect actually there and things like that. Um, it's, it's vitally important to work with other clinicians and make sure that you're explaining these concepts in a way that they understand and can use as well. I think we struggle with the idea of randomness. We struggle to, if you ask people to, um, one of the experiments that one of the other speakers does quite a lot is he asks people to shout out heads or tails in a seemingly random pattern. And, and you can always pick up, actually, you can always spot the ones that are random and the ones that are, have been done by humans. And I think as humans, we, we struggle to grasp the idea of randomness because you know randomness can mean as well that we get sometimes um, lots of the same results all in a row and things like that. I think purely random process is something that we really struggle to get our head around and trying to tease apart what's happening by chance and what's actually what causal inferences and things like that is something that we find really difficult at times. So you need to have a proper comparison so that you don't confuse this regression to the mean and you don't confuse chance with causality. Um, and I've got th about 25 seconds left but um, I've been Jennifer Rogers talking to you about causality and chance. Thank you very much. <laughs> That was Jen Rogers. As always, you can hear extended versions of the interviews as well as watch videos on our website at lshtm.ac.uk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>